the universe is expanding. But how do we know that? In today's episode, we will discuss how a circular from 1912 sent around in Harvard College Observatory completely revolutionized our understanding of the universe. This is episode three of the Open Universe podcast. And as always, I'm Saunak. And I'm Anna. And thank you for listening again. hard to believe that short document, only three pages total, can so fundamentally change our understanding of the universe. Papers that long are not very common today. And this was not even a full research paper. It was really just reported as a circular, sort of a news notice of the Harvard College Observatory. Quite curiously, the main author, Henrietta Leavitt, wasn't even signed on it. It was signed by the director of the observatory at the time, Edward Pickering. However, the first sentence says, the following statement regarding the periods of 25 variable stars in the small Magellanic cloud has been prepared by Ms. Levitt. So this kind of gives us a window into what it was like to be a woman astronomer in 1912. Yeah, it was probably quite an interesting time to have been around the observatory because I can't imagine it would have been too common to see large groups of female research scientists being employed at any one institution back in the early parts of the 1900s. But after Edward Pickering became the director of the observatory, he had a large group of women research scientists of the order of maybe 50 or so, who collectively became known as the Harvard Computers, for very good reason in that their role primarily was to actually take the data that was being collected by the various telescopes and facilities that Harvard Observatory was involved with and catalog this information and process the data accordingly. But they weren't actually given the autonomy to operate these telescopes of themselves. But they became, collectively as a group, really revolutionary in what we have come to appreciate about astronomy over the subsequent 100 years or so. So that was truly a transformative time, if not socially, but certainly academically in the world of astronomy. Yeah, for sure. And I think it does speak to kind of how there is a lot to be do just with the data that has already been collected, even though these women computers weren't able to design their own experiments. By analyzing this already collected data, they learned a lot about how the universe functions. So one big undertaking that the observatory was doing at the time is photographing the sky. So it looks kind of boring work. It was just recently that the photographic plates have been developed and astronomers were like, oh, well, they saw a great opportunity there because until now to study what is out there, astronomers had to basically look with their eyes and then make a drawing. But now there was this possibility of taking a permanent record of it. And Harvard College Observatory was conducting this huge endeavor of photographing the entire sky. Yeah, and these photographic plates were quite interesting devices in their own right, because they really were just pretty large dish-sized objects made of glass, but quite thin and certainly not 
the kind of glass that you and I are sort of used to in terms of what makes up our homes, for example. But these glass plates would often be covered in these silver salts, which are very sensitive to light. And this actually made them quite handy in terms of capturing information being contained within light. So photography, in other words, this really predates the use of film, for example, in terms of capturing and recording images in the sky. Yeah, it seems so quaint, even though during our lifetimes, we have used films on camera, but this was the early 1900s version of it. And interestingly, there is a huge collection of these plates still available and on display at the observatory. So in our resources, we have put a link to the so-called plate stacks, which are absolutely amazing to see such historical records of research done continuously at the observatory for so long. And some of them have had quite a journey. The title of this paper is Periods of 25 Variable Stars in the Small Magellanic Cloud. So as we know, the Magellanic Clouds are only visible from the Southern Hemisphere. Of course, the observatory was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So they clearly had to travel quite a long way to get to their final destination, didn't they? Yeah. And as you can imagine, transporting anything back in the day probably wasn't as convenient as it is these days, let alone transporting dozens and dozens of glass plates, which were pretty bulky, I'd imagine, really had to be carried over across the world in ships. So you kind of have to firstly be quite patient as an astronomer in the early 1900s, because you know that the data has been taken remotely somewhere in the world. And then you have to wait several months to potentially longer than a year for that data to finally turn up at your doorstep. And until that point, you don't really know what you're going to open up and find. So really, you can almost imagine the level of anticipation, excitement, and perhaps apprehension as well that people must have been feeling at these times uh, when it comes to really seeing what their painstaking observations would have resulted in. Yeah, I just want to say that I found Harvard Crimson article from December 5th, 1895, talking about the shipping of the telescope on which these observations have been made. So it's not about the place themselves, but it was really curious to read the sentences that talked about shipping the metal parts of the telescope to New York by the Metropolitan Steamer and talking about the lenses, which are more sensitive, made of glass, kind of carefully packed in a strong room of a ship so to make sure that they actually make the journey. I think people these days complain about like how there's a lot of excess cost when it comes to doing observational astronomy, where people maybe fly off to the far-off reaches of the world to some observatory to collect data. But I can't imagine this would have been too much cheaper an enterprise having data turn up at your doorstep when you're having to ship them across the world, but also have them in these very sort of special enclosed environments on board a ship with presumably other things on it as well, right? To ensure that nothing sort of breaks or is compromised in the course of the arduous journey. For sure. And even for the cost of the telescope itself, it was $50,000 it took for the telescope to be built. So if we correct this for inflation, it actually might be similar to the cost of the telescopes we build these days. Yeah, wow. So I just had a 
quick look at seeing how much $50,000 back in 1895 would be worth now. And according to this website that I'm looking at, it could be anywhere between $2 million and $68 million, depending on exactly what the particular commodity is. Yeah, so it was real money. And the benefactor of the telescope was Catherine Bruce, a wealthy unmarried New Yorker who donated the money to have the telescope built. And then that was subsequently used by women astronomers like Henrietta Leavitt to make these fundamental discoveries about the universe. Sonny, you mentioned variable stars as the primary sort of objects of interest when it comes to these particular observations that Henrietta Leavitt was interested in and, of course, the main subject of this episode. And the name variable stars, as is maybe obvious from the word variable, really implies that these stars are unlike our traditional notions of what stars in the night sky are like. So we think of these stars as, or stars in general as these sort of persistent perennial memories of nuclear fusion processes going on somewhere in space and they continuously generate a large amount of energy and light, most prominently, of course, in the case of the sun, which keeps us illuminated and warm. Nice and warm. (laughs) Nice and warm, exactly, yeah. But variable stars were particularly interesting and are particularly interesting classes of objects because rather than being a continuous and pretty predictable source of light, Variable stars actually dimmed and brightened in a periodic fashion. So maybe they were predictable, but just in a different way in that you could predict when that star would look brighter and when it would look dimmer. And so you can imagine that when the first variable stars were discovered, it generated a huge amount of public interest and, of course, scientific interest as to what they could possibly be. And so they really became very fashionable objects to study at the time. Yeah, for sure. In that same Crimson article, there was a note from the observatory in Peru saying, the latest male advice from Arequipa says that the new star discovered in the constellation Carina last spring is fading away. So it was like that important in this short paragraph, really describing just the construction of a new telescope. They had like this urge to comment on this new discovery of this variable stars that like seems to be discovered as a new star and then is now fading away. I can imagine that must have caused a fair bit of concern perhaps amongst people now because if you see this celestial object that is burning bright and all of a sudden starts to dim away, if I didn't know better and if I were around all those years ago, I think I might have been at least a little more than mildly concerned about what maybe this all meant. <laughs> yeah, and no, I think this exactly mirrors how astronomers were feeling about it. They basically call these stars nova, meaning new or supernova, or especially bright new star. And this is interesting because at this point in history, it was possible to detect this brightness variations, not only in these extremes where you actually detect a new star that previously was so faint that it wasn't visible, and it was possible to detect milder variations in brightness and then to actually study what is driving them. So the goal of this whole project was basically a big fishing expedition. Harvard College Observatory, they're like, okay, well, I guess we got this money to build a telescope. And now we have these fancy plates where you don't have to draw and like 
brightness of stars with your eyes, we can take recordings of it and try to measure brightnesses of many stars and analyze them later on, which is where all of those women computers came in. Someone needed to do all of the boring work. Yeah, and they quite literally stacks and stacks of data to pass through, right, in the form of these glass plates. And actually, you mentioned the fact that you can see these photographic plates online, and we'll, of course, provide links to this. But if anyone actually lives locally and is listening to this, there are opportunities to come visit the plate stack collections at the Center for Astrophysics, of course. Post-pandemic. Post-pandemic, yeah. You can see some of the hand-drawn illustrations that have been made by the researchers who were around at the observatory at the time, who are basically just copying the images seen on the photographic plates into their notebooks. And you can see some hand-drawn, really amazing hand-drawn illustrations of things like Jupiter and like the moon and so on and so forth. I haven't actually been to the plate stacks. Whenever they open, I have to go there myself. Unless I've imagined this, I'm pretty sure I saw some illustration of Jupiter in a notebook. And I have a feeling it was taken from one of these photographic plates, but I could be wrong. And it's more than just the markings. I really enjoyed like reading this paper and how it was an issue actually matching up the stars. Because after you point a telescope, and if you want to measure how the brightness of a star varies, you have to make repeated images of the same part of the sky. But there's a of course, no guarantee that you will always exactly position the telescope the same. So what they ended up doing is have one sort of main plate that has a millimeter grid on it that was used to position to identify the relevant stars that are variable and help them identify them on all of the subsequent plates, which is kind of remarkable and very painstaking work, but absolutely necessary because There are so many stars in small Magellanic Cloud, and it was part of the difficulty that they're sort of overlapping each other. It was necessary to have such a precise measurement of their positions on the plate to be able to make sure that you are always looking at the same star. Yeah, if I remember correctly, the opening portion of this paper actually remarks about this particular fact, don't they, when they talk about the difficulties of getting these measurements done accurately in the very crowded field of stars that existed within the small Magellanic Cloud. Yeah. I'm always astounded when I hear of the kinds of tricks and routines that people had to go through back in the day to do these seemingly menial but hugely, hugely complex and painstaking tasks. And it's one of the many reasons why I'm kind of happy I'm born in this century and not two centuries ago. (laughs) We do take a lot of it for granted. But even if you take a digital image of the sky, you kind of need to have some reference of identifying the known stars. It's just that all of that work has been done in the past century, so it's really easy for us. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And this whole idea of having reference stars in the sky is really what underlies this whole idea of measuring the brightness of these so-called variable stars. Because when we say that the brightness of these stars are changing as a function of time, it's really kind of using some of the non-changing stars in the sky as a reference or as our baseline to say that, oh, this variable star of interest has become 100 times brighter 
than it was so many days ago, and now has become 100 times fainter than it was so many days ago. So in astronomy, having the sort of baseline or the zero point against which changes can be measured, the so-called idea of transient phenomenon in the sky is really one of the key things that we need to do first before calibrating any kind of observational program. That's an excellent point. And it was the time when it was first realized how important that aspect is. As you were saying, the variable stars are very in vogue. And not just among the professional astronomers, but also people who enjoyed looking at the night sky. And there was a big community of what today we call the citizen scientists who actually wanted to take their own observations of brightness of stars. And it was Edward Pickering, the Harvard Observatory director, who came up with a set of standard stars and provided them to the community to be used in estimating the brightnesses of variable stars. So it was all maintained in the same place. You might be wondering, with all the discussion so far, as to how any of this is really related to opening up our universe. What was remarkable about this three-page 1912 circular was that a very simple set of data and a very simple relationship between different quantities that was measured out of the variable stars in these data sets was presented that had very profound consequences for astronomy and cosmology for the next 100 years and even beyond. And so the exciting development of this proliferation of measurements of brightness of different kinds of variable stars is that there are some similarities among different stars that started to emerge. And particularly one very interesting class, which is the topic of this circular, are the stars that appear to rapidly rise in brightness, be at this maximum very briefly, then slowly fade away and remain at this minimum for a little while. And in some circular from four years prior to this one in 1908, it appeared that these might be interesting stars, but there are still like not that many of them and didn't have enough observations to precisely determine periods of these variations in brightness, which changed in four years when they had to plan the new observations, communicate them to Peru, get the plates back. And then in this paper, they actually were able to measure periods of that brightness variation from minimum to maximum for 25 stars. That shows a good level of scientific honesty on their part, right? That (laughs) they might have made this particular claim that we're about to describe even earlier on, but they resisted the urge to do so, thinking that, well, perhaps the amount of data that we have at the moment is inconclusive or will give us inconclusive outcomes. And again, this is one of those things where you can't just, unlike today, just go to the internet and retrieve more data. You really have to (laughs) wait quite a long while before even one or two additional data points become available to you. I love this sentence. They were like so honest. They said, at the time, it was felt that the number was too small to warrant the drawing of general conclusions. Yeah. Yep. If only some astronomers these days would keep to the same level of scientific integrity, eh? not naming any names. And really, after that point, which Anna just described, we get the main punchline of 
this circular, which seemed pretty unassuming, but has really quite remarkable consequences. In a single figure that is shown on the very last page, well, two figures really shown on the very <laughs> last page, where this time period over which the brightness of these particular subset of variable stars was changing is shown on one axis, and the other axis shows exactly what the peak brightness or the minimum brightness reached by those stars is as a function of this time period of variation. And what Henrietta Leavitt found was this remarkable level of correlation between these two quantities, which basically meant that the luminosity variations in these stars is very, very, very tightly correlated with the time periods of their oscillations. And this particular discovery made by Henrietta Leffitt had really quite remarkable consequences, not only for what we thought we knew about stars, but really for astronomy as a whole. Because what's interesting is because we now know that these stars are all located at roughly the same distance away from us, being that they're all part of the small Magellanic cloud, it would mean that the variations that we are seeing in the brightness of these stars cannot be related to how far or how close these stars are relative to one another, relative to us here on Earth. Right, because you can always make a star appear brighter if it's just closer to us. Exactly. But that was not the case here. That was not the case, right? So if these stars are all at roughly the same distance, then the variations that we are seeing has to be related to something that is true about the stars themselves and not about the system that these stars are individually part of. So by actually measuring this relationship between the period of oscillations of these stars and what the luminosity variations of these stars is, we can actually get a handle of what the distance is between ourselves and this population of stars that we see in the night sky. Yeah, that was super exciting, right? Because it meant that if you measure the period of that variation, and as we were describing, this is not easy. It especially wasn't easy at the time, but still, it is something you can do. It means that if you can measure this period, you basically know how bright the star should be on its own. And then from the brightness that you actually observe, you can calculate how far away from us it is. And this was really huge because it's really hard to measure distances in astronomy, especially at the time with that levels of precision. It was almost impossible to measure distances beyond the solar system. Yeah, and so this really became one of the first and more importantly, one of the most accurate techniques we had available to us that allowed us to actually measure distances to celestial objects beyond our solar system using these special kinds of stars that are called Cepheid variables. But by recognizing that we could apply this relationship between the period and the luminosity of these variable stars in a pretty general sense, it meant that we didn't just have to limit this particular observation to stars identified in the Magellanic Clouds, but anywhere in our galaxy or potentially other galaxies where you could see the same kinds of stars and measure the same kinds of relationships, you could get an estimate for what the distance to that particular object might be. And so this became the first tool set really available to us to being able to measure distances and work out how far away things in a night sky are 
well beyond the scale of our solar system and beyond the scale of even our own galaxy. It's actually really amazing how quickly that method was adopted. We stress so many times that this is just like a short circular. It wasn't published nationally. It was just something that Harvard Observatory did. And yet only a few years afterwards, this method has been adopted to measure distances to these kinds of variable stars all across the sky. And interestingly, some of them were in what was at the time known as the Andromeda Nebula. There was a big discussion going on whether this was just a nebula, a group of stars at the outskirts of our own, or a galaxy in its own right. And after the measurement of a distance using the Cepheid variables, it was found that it was way too far to be part of our own galaxy. And in this sense, Cepheids, these variable stars, have opened up our universe. They showed us that there are other galaxies like our own at much larger distances uh, that are populating the universe. Yeah, in a sort of weird way, you might also convince yourself that being able to measure the distances to objects in space with the help of this period and luminosity relationship discovered by Henrietta Leavitt was kind of almost our first inklings at an answer to perhaps the most fundamental question of all, which is, are we alone in the universe, right? Because you might think that the Milky Way might be the only galactic entity that has stars and potentially planets within it. But once we established that the Andromeda Nebulus was not just a nebulous object, but rather a galaxy in its own right, it meant that there must be, or there at least could be, several other galaxies strewn across the night sky, perhaps completely beyond our observational capacity to measure, at least at that time. And therefore, the possibilities of there being individual star systems and planetary systems and even life, therefore, just completely exploded thereafter. In many ways, this was a much more profound discovery that Henrietta Leavitt made beyond just the simple mechanics of this relationship between different properties of stars. It's very profound. And I think it really speaks to the kinds of insights that big data has been providing for more than a hundred years, because this truly was a big data challenge yeah. that they analyzed. The task was finding patterns in the data or like not even the task. They were just like, as I said, on a fishing expedition. So they identified a pattern in the data and that had these profound implications for basically our place in the universe. Because we always think of big data these days as taking in a very large bag of numbers in some sense and trying to eke out what is the most informative or telling pieces of information in there. And nowadays we think of big data as things that contain tens of millions or even billions of data points. But at the time in, when these measurements were being taken, I think the total number of stars that we knew about that were at least a variable nature across the Magellanic Clouds was off the order of maybe 2,000. Yeah. And from that, you had to basically work out that there was this small subpopulation of 25 stars that showed this unique relationship that allowed you to figure out a particular pattern that gives you the most amount of information. Mm. And there were no computers, really, except for the human version of the computer, which is the researchers who worked at the observatory at the time, who were available to actually really go from 
the source, which are these photographic plates, all the way to the final result. And so this is, I think, really the first kind of example that I'm familiar with, which shows the true nature of big data processing in some sense, going from a large amount of potentially nonsensical data points to a small amount of incredibly informative and profound pieces of the puzzle. That's exactly right. And it's really a beautiful demonstration that the concept of big data has been around for a while, just the scale has changed recently and kind of entered the public domain as a term. But actually, it has been fairly well established in the sciences. I hope it kind of becomes clear that this three-page circular that was sent around back in 1912 really helped expand the remit of what the universe really means to us. And as Anna said, the significance of Henrietta Leavitt's results were recognized almost immediately. And in fact, just two decades later, this idea of using the period and luminosity relationship between these Cepheid variable stars as a technique or as a tool to measure distances to celestial objects became one of the key pieces of the puzzle that helped us eventually learn that the universe that we live in is not just a static object, but one that is constantly expanding. Yeah, and it's a still very active area of research. And we might get to this topic in one of our future episodes, because one of the biggest controversies in physics and astronomy these days is the tension in the measured expansion rate of the universe between what these variable stars are telling us and more cosmological measurements. So. Stay tuned. I don't know about you, Anna, but when I was reading this particular paper, I, for one of the very rare moments in my time reading an astronomy letter or article, I was kind of almost transported into the shoes of the researchers of the time, just sort of sitting and waiting and anticipating with bated breath as to what these results are going to be like and will they work, will it not work, will we discover something new? And I love how it closes. It does end on this note of, oh, inspiring. They're like, okay, we found out this relationship, but there are way more questions that arose from the properties of these telling me five stars, the answers they have provided. And it is hoped that a systematic study of the light changes of all of the variables may soon be undertaken at this observatory. So it really kind of is saying like, there is more to come. I hadn't actually appreciated the line just until now. And what I like about that line is that the way it's phrased, that it's hoped that it'll soon be undertaken at this observatory, almost makes it sound like they, in their own minds, didn't play up the significance of the result as much by saying that we hope that there's something people at Harvard Observatory will think of doing in more detail, not like we hope that the community will now see this result and run with it, which is maybe the tone that is more commonly employed in papers these days. And which is totally what happened, like with this result, yeah. Yeah, maybe humility (laughs) sometimes leads to much better and more consequential outcomes than not. The whole paper is written this way. It might be just like that there are fewer places where science was done. It was kind of more like an individual endeavor as I say, like research undertaking at this particular place. They're not trying to change the world or anything, but they really do care about those 25 stars. Like, why are they behaving this way? 
Absolutely, yeah. And with good reason. As it turned out. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Anna, but I, as a researcher, have long been waiting to be filled with the same sense of awe and inspiration that comes with waiting around for your results to come in, in the hope that it will tell you something quite profound. But seeing as we're now reaching close to 5 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon and a rather warm one, I think the only inspiration that I can think of that will fill me with a sense of awe is the prospect of ordering some takeaway later tonight, I think. (laughs) On that note, (laughs) thank you everyone for joining us and until next episode. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. Take care. And we hope awe and inspiration fills your lives too. Bye. Bye.